Good evening. Let's read together from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, let me add my welcome to Matt's. Uh, it's great to share with you tonight as we continue in our series in Acts. We're looking through Acts 1 to 8, uh, that first section of the book in this term. Um, and so as we come to this passage that's just been read for us, uh, we're going to pray in a moment. Before we do that, uh, a couple of people have commented in the last week or so uh, in terms of this current wave of Omicron and uh, whether the um, church needs to um, give any further information at this time. Uh, I made a similar statement this morning just to say that there have been no changes in the government rules at this point, um, and so we will continue as we are. Of course, some people are choosing uh, for themselves and perhaps for the sake of others' health um, to wear a mask, and that's great. Um, so we encourage that in anyone who wants to make that choice. And for those that feel they don't need to make that choice, that is fine too. So as we are today is how we'll continue. But if there is any change or new government directives, we'll certainly act on those and communicate that to everyone if the time comes. But let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll have a look at the first part of Acts 2. 
Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather tonight. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, for through it, we hear your voice speaking to us clearly, uh, revealing your Son, the Lord Jesus, and the way of salvation and all of your plans to see the good news go to all the nations. And as we come to this crucial passage um, in the expansion of your kingdom uh, in Acts 2 tonight, we ask that you might give us uh, clarity as we think about your word. But more than that, we'd not simply understand it, but that we'd act in the light of it. Help us to be those that are part of your ongoing work in this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was the opening night curtain raiser for the cultural events associated with the Sydney Olympics in 2000. Christine and I were at the Superdome in Homebush on Saturday the 19th of August, and we were there with thousands of others to witness a combined choir of 900 people plus the 100-piece Sydney Symphony Orchestra. And what we were seeing was a presentation of Mahler's Eighth Symphony. It was an incredible sound which filled the whole of the Superdome. Uh, Mahler's massive work uh, features a choir, a double chorus, eight solo vocalists, and an expanded orchestra. However, although we enjoyed what we were hearing and we were inspired by the sheer power of the production, we didn't really appreciate what we were seeing. We didn't fully understand what we were witnessing. You see, we're not classical musical buffs, and the tickets we had to go had been given to us by uh, a couple of neighbours across the street. Unfortunately, the wife was really sick with the flu. They couldn't go. They said, do you want to go in our place? We said, sure. Started the Olympics, get to see a symphony, why not? But we had no real appreciation, you know, from what country Mahler was from, uh, when he lived, whether his symphony was impressive, whether the performance we were hearing was a good representation of his work. And we certainly couldn't understand the additional opera singers that joined halfway through the production and exchanged solos in a foreign language. It was all startling. It was an awesome volume. It was great to witness, but its fuller meaning was sadly lost on us. We couldn't really interpret what we were witnessing. Well, in the passage that we come to tonight in Acts chapter 2, we see a startling event which many of the God-fearing Jews who witnessed it could not interpret. But thankfully for them, they had someone to explain it to them. Which brings us to our big question that we're going to consider this evening, and that is this. What does the coming of the Spirit mean? What does the coming of the Holy Spirit mean? Three answers to that question tonight. First of them is this. Christ's promise is fulfilled. First answer is that Christ's promise is fulfilled. So notice again what is recorded in verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated out and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Well, this startling event was uh, witnessed by a crowd of people in Jerusalem that had come from all over the known world at that point. And it was the coming of the Holy Spirit that they were witnessing. And notice in verse 1, Luke wants to set the scene for us so that we might appreciate uh, the context of this event. 
He gives us the when and the who and the where. So the when is the day of Pentecost. Uh, the who is the 120 believers match, uh, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 15, rather than just the 12 apostles. And the where is in one place, which is further identified, notice in verse 2, as a house. And so the setting here is important to grasp because it's momentous events that are about to follow. Perhaps the most significant point amongst those is the timing, the day of Pentecost. Pentecost um, means 50 days after the Passover. That was what it marked. It was a day that marked the beginning of the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks was one of the three big festivals that the Jews all would commit to being part of every year. They'd only just been there 50 days earlier for the Passover, which was the peak of their three festivals. But here they are returning 50 days later for the Feast of Weeks. And it was a festival to give thanks to God for a successful harvest. And it's thought by historians that the population of Jerusalem would swell at this time from about 50,000 people to over a million people. And so you can imagine their city would have been thronging with people from all over the Roman Empire. And in verses 2 and 3, we notice that the coming of the Spirit is described in terms of both sound and sight. And so in verse 2, there is a sound like a violent wind. Uh, the wind is understood to symbolize the presence of God's Spirit. In fact, in the Old Testament, the same Hebrew word is used for both wind and spirit. The symbolism had been used a number of times in the Old Testament, uh, for example, by the prophet Ezekiel. Um, he had prophesied a vision calling on the wind or the breath of God to breathe new life into dead bodies in a valley of dry bones, Ezekiel 37. And probably alluding to Ezekiel's, Ezekiel's vision, um, Jesus, remember, had spoken to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and had said, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, ultimately, it is clear in this passage that in the disciples' experience, the Spirit of God came on them in power. And this is reinforced in verse 3 by the visible too, the tongues of fire, Again, there's Old Testament precedent to this image or uh, metaphor, this significance of the fire. It's found firstly in Exodus 3, uh, where Moses is confronted, you might remember, with the burning bush. And of course, then there was the pillar of fire that led Israel out through the wilderness, representative of God's presence. And fire indicated the coming of the Spirit in Acts 2, ultimately because it was in fulfillment of John the Baptist's prophecy in Luke's first volume, in Luke chapter 3. I remember John had foretold about Jesus who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so having described the coming of the Spirit here in verses 2 and 3, Luke then records its effect on the 120 disciples. Firstly, we're told that they are filled with the Holy Spirit, which fulfilled the promise, the receiving of the Spirit, the promise that Jesus had made, as we saw last week in Acts chapter 1, and of course earlier also in Luke 24. Now, I just want to pause for a moment in the narrative here to make an application or a side on the filling here with the Holy Spirit. And that is that baptism in the Spirit which each of the believers experienced at this point 
was a once-for-all event for the individual. You may be aware that Pentecostal theology claims that a person must have a second blessing or a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, but this is not what we see played out in the book of Acts. They derive that theology in part from this Pentecost event because they see the 120 disciples rightly as already being Christians and then receiving the Spirit after they were a Christian. Yes, that is true, but this is a unique historical event because it marks the coming of the Holy Spirit for the first time. It doesn't reflect what is the norm for all Christians going forward. And so a person who becomes a believer today receives the Holy Spirit that moment that they turn in repentance and faith and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. And in fact, that's what we see played out in the book of Acts, even in this chapter. And so as you get to the end of Acts chapter 2, which we'll be considering next week in verse 38, after Peter's great speech to the crowd, in verse 38, he says to them, as they ask for how they should respond, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit right then and there, as they turn in repentance and faith. And so the Spirit is received at that point. So if you're a Christian today, don't let anyone tell you that you need some subsequent event to really give you the Holy Spirit, that you haven't quite received it yet. Now, I raise that point uh, not simply because it's important to grasp, but because it is an example of a thing that runs right through, a theme that runs right through the book of Acts. We get lots of one-offs in the book of Acts. These are historical firsts that are not repeatable. And so we need to see as we read the book of Acts that often it is descriptive. It's giving us a history of things that unfolded, but it's not necessarily prescriptive. It doesn't prescribe what will happen for all believers for all time. Now, a good rule of thumb to ask whether something that is raised in Acts or that occurs in Acts is just for that moment or whether it's an ongoing thing that will be experienced by all believers is then to see if that theme or action is repeated in the rest of the New Testament, especially in the letters under the settled church, uh, whether those themes are picked up again and said to be normative for all believers. Now, continuing on in verse 4, having been filled with the Holy Spirit, then the disciples are enabled to speak in tongues. And this soon leads to a crowd gathering around because of what's happening. So notice again, verses 5 to 8. Now they were staying, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it? that each of us hears them in our native language. So the Greek word used in verse 4, um, glosses, that's the tongues, can equally be translated tongues or languages. And it's clear from later on in verse 11 that the disciples were speaking recognizable languages, not some form of indecipherable heavenly speech. And that is further borne out by the use of the word language, did you notice, at the end of verse 6 and verse 8. Because a separate Greek word is used in those two occasions, the word dialecto, that's from which we get the English word dialect or language. 
And so we can see that what Luke is doing as he uses these terms is using them interchangeably to refer to the speaking of languages that can be understood in this instance. The content of the disciples' speech is given to us from these various languages in verse 11. We hear them, the crowd says, declaring the wonders or mighty deeds of God in our own tongues. And so it's symbolic of the fact that the coming of the Spirit, which had been promised by Jesus to the disciples in Acts 1.8, as we saw last week, was now empowering them to present the good news, to be witnesses to all people, people from all nations. Yes, at this point, just in Jerusalem, but in the chapters that will follow, we'll see the gospel will go out to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so they would proclaim the good news about Jesus' life, his death and resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit, having his supernatural help. Now, all of this is reinforced by the reaction of the crowds in verse 5 to 13. To this unique event. Notice the people present, uh, people present were pilgrims from many different areas, as we've mentioned in verses 9 to 11. They'd gathered for Jerusalem in this festival, but the main reaction in verses 5 to 12 is one of amazement. They just can't believe it, uh, because how can it be? In verse 6, we're told they're bewildered. In verse 7, utterly amazed. In verse 12, both amazed and perplexed. And the reason for the reaction is simple, given by the crowds themselves in verses 7 and 8. This group of 120 disciples are all obviously Galileans. Sadly, their, their own accent gave them away. That was Peter's problem, right, at the high priest's courtyard. They knew instantly that he was a Galilean because of his accent. And yet here were these people that they knew all came from this backwater in the northern part of Israel, speaking numerous languages which they could not know. And therefore it was truly amazing, but it was perplexing. How could this be? It seemed impossible, humanly speaking. Now it is amazing to hear your own language spoken in a foreign country. It just jumps out at you because you're used to hearing another language all the time and then somebody speaks something that you can clearly understand and it grabs your attention naturally. My wife Christine and I uh, were able to have a short trip to Europe in 1999 and we started our trip in Rome. We landed for the start of a six-week trip, but unfortunately our luggage didn't land with us, it seemed. And so we got out and had that terrible sinking feeling as it just didn't come out on the conveyor belt and we ran to every conveyor belt in the place, nothing. And then we decided, well, we have to approach the lost and found, the luggage uh, departments, see what we can do, and just hoping that somebody would speak English. And, of course, we went to desk after desk and we got fluent Italian in response but the smallest amount of broken English. And it was getting desperate. I, I had done Italian in year seven, and I had about 10 words. And it, it wasn't working very well, trying to say, you know, flight number, lost my luggage. We weren't getting anywhere. When suddenly this person came across, obviously hearing our frustration, and just suddenly spoke in fluent English right next to me. I can help you with the problem of your lost luggage. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing, somebody that understands me. And it took me a moment to register. Hey, I've got somebody here now that I can speak to, and we can sort this out. It cuts in because we suddenly hear a voice that we recognize. Well, look, it's a weak parallel to the amazement felt by the crowd on the day of Pentecost. It doesn't really convey their bewilderment, 
It's not perplexing to find a bilingual Italian, but it is to be confronted by multilingual Galileans preaching the mighty works of God to everyone about them. It's an impossibility which proved that the moment something supernatural was taking place. The event was nothing less than a reversal of the curse of Babel, albeit a temporary one where God had confused the languages. Remember in Genesis 11, as they sought to make a tower, make a name for themselves before God, he confused the languages and they were forced to spread out. They were divided, disunity entered in. But here they're unified, even though they speak all different languages, suddenly they're hearing the one message of God in every voice so that it can understand it. Here the pilgrims hear the praises of God in their tongue spoken by these Galileans. And that brings me to a second answer to this question. What does the coming of the Spirit mean? Well, secondly, it means that we live in the last days. We live in the last days. Have a look again at verses 14 to 18. Peter takes his moment. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. You see, the proclaiming of God's mighty deeds in many languages had achieved a useful purpose. It attracted a large crowd of people around the disciples. And so Peter uses the moment. He calls for people's attention. He explains the meaning of what they're witnessing. And he begins firstly in verse 15 by rejecting the charge of drunkenness that a few in the crowd had raised in verse 13. But then he goes on in verses 16 to 21, and he declares that the event is the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament, in particular the prophet Joel. He does this through quoting the authority of Scripture to say, look, no, this is something that God had already predicted. This is not something that should surprise. This is God fulfilling his promises of old. And so the quotation that we have there in Acts 2 uh, from verses 17 to 21 comes from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. And Peter is declaring that the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy has arrived. They're witnessing its fulfillment that moment. And so the sign of these last days is at least in part the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the main theme of Peter's statement here is that this is something that God is pouring out on all nations. The outpouring of God's Spirit is for the whole human race. Literally the phrase in verse 17 there, on all people, is on all flesh. And so notice in verses 17 and 18, both male and female, every age group are included. What we're getting here is like this faint sketch of the worldwide Gentile mission which is about to ensue. The outpouring of the Spirit on 120 disciples is just the beginning. It didn't complete the fulfillment of the outpouring, but it's going to continue. It's going to begin from here and go to the ends of the earth, empowering Christ's disciples to preach the good news, to fulfill the Great Commission. And you know that's still being fulfilled today. 
Now, lots of commentators have mentioned over the last 2,000 years that the book of Acts only has 28 chapters, but we've been re- uh, writing Acts 29 onwards for these last 2,000 years. We're writing the history of the, the Great Commission day by day as the gospel continues to go out through Christ's church year on year, decade on decade, century on century. And, of course, we've got a part to play in that too as a church here. Collectively, we need to be focused on making Christ known as much as we want to grow up in our maturity and know him better ourselves. And that's why you'll have heard us talk about now in the last few years or sometime in the last little while about planting a church in Calderwood. Uh, It's part of our desire as spirit-empowered witnesses in these last days to see more people in the Illawarra reached with the good news. We first talked about this back in 2016, but through God's blessing on our church over the past few years, I feel like we're now in a position uh, to pursue that desire, that commitment over the next 12 or 18 months. And God willing, under God, that will uh, take place. Let me tell you why I think it's a good idea in terms of its timing, despite our nation still exiting a pandemic that's disrupted all of our lives for the past three years. Perhaps in the midst of that, you think, why now? You know, Surely this is not a good moment to consider such a thing. Well, I'm sure you've heard a number of times in the media over the last three years about how these worldwide pandemics seem to come once in 100 years. The previous worldwide pandemic was 1918 to 1920, the Spanish flu epidemic. It killed 500 million people around the world. And that came on the back of World War I. And what followed it was the Great Depression. Now, surely God wouldn't have been about doing a great work in the world and seeing many churches planted and the gospel go out powerfully in that period, would he? No, that's exactly what he would do. You know, the Baptist churches in New South Wales had their greatest period of growth between 1925 and 1933. The number of churches doubled in that eight years alone. How is that possible? Because God chose to act. That's how it's possible, just like Pentecost. God was doing amazing things across all the Protestant churches in that era. On the back of a pandemic, in the middle of the Great Depression, God's word continued to go out. And this is just my simple reflection, but I think the reason that God did that was because all the glory has to go to him at such a moment. The churches didn't start in their own strength We've got so many resources stockpiled up, we can just go and plant churches everywhere and do everything in our own strength and energy. No, not at all. We didn't have it. And what happened could not be explained. It was supernatural. God did it. All the glory went to him. My point is that our plans for reaching the lost shouldn't be shelved because we face a difficult time or it's been a a hard couple of years. We live in the last days. God can do great things. He does even greater things in our weakness. And so we need to continue to think about collectively as a church how we can be part of his great work as it continues on. That brings me to a third and final point, just an extension of that as we apply this a bit further to ourselves. We have a role today. We have a role in these last days. How are we to respond to this section of Acts 2? Well, firstly, we need to know the time that we live in. You, know, you need to be convinced that you live in the last days, which are indicated by the outpouring of God's Spirit. 
The last days in the New Testament are the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Christ's birth, life, death and resurrection, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 marks the beginning of the last days. And they'll be wrapped up when Jesus returns in his second coming. And so we live in that moment, that time of salvation, where the good news can go out and people can draw, be drawn into Christ's kingdom. And so we live in a crucial period of time, a time of salvation. And as the Apostle Peter says in verse 21 at the end of the section we're looking at this evening, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But once Christ returns, that opportunity will be over. Now, you may think, well, there's room for complacency. You know, uh, Maybe I don't need to be thinking seriously about this. It's been 2,000 years now, right, since Jesus might have returned and he still hasn't come. But as the same Apostle Peter said elsewhere in his second letter to Peter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The end is coming, and it could come very soon. We don't know. Jesus might wrap up this world tonight. And so we need to be about his kingdom. The only reason the world continues at the moment is because God is showing mercy, allowing more time for people to hear the gospel and turn in repentance and faith. And so secondly, if I've understood rightly the time in which I live, then the second question is, am I, is, is whether I'm going to be a person of this time. I need to be a person of this time for Christ. He calls me to be. We need to seize this moment, continue to be a witness, as the first apostles were to the resurrected Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. So whether it's involvement in the church plant we hope to see happen under God or being a witness to your work colleagues or neighbours, do you sense the urgency of the task in front of you? Are you willing to make sacrifices for it, to pull out all stops, to be uncomfortable so that others might hear, that they might share the joy that you have because of your trust and forgiveness in the Lord Jesus? Sometimes we go to such great efforts, we'll sacrifice anything for other lesser important things in life. You know, back in 1988, uh, the US presidential campaign was happening uh, between Bush and Dukakis, and, but there was this unexpected shift of attention to two whales in Alaska in the middle of the election. They were trapped in a breathing hole many kilometres from the ocean. And so the presidential campaign was upstaged by these two whales because winter had arrived early in northern Alaska that year and the whales were trapped under this ever-increasing covering of solid ice. And at first there were only a few compassionate Eskimos that were interested in what was happening and they're using their chainsaws and cutting a hole and trying to provide more space for them. But then media got hold of this and um, word grew and spread. And so next a, a screw tractor came which can cut up the ice and break it up and take it away more quickly. But even that was too slow. And then the National Guard of the US brought in two sky cranes uh, with massive five 
ton blocks of concrete that they would drop onto the ice and try and smash it and create a bigger hole. That wasn't working. And so the Russians thought, here's our chance to upstage them. And so they brought in two icebreaker ships, one that was 11 stories tall, and they cut this huge swathe through the ice and the whales were saved. All political differences set aside for this unusual mission. Two weeks of effort, one and a half million dollars spent, 1988. It's impressive. I'm all for saving the whales. There's lots of stickers around saying that. But I like the sticker that some of the mission agencies have brought out post that in the last couple of decades, save the humans. I wonder if it strikes you as a strange phenomenon, the desperation, the planning that we will show to save an animal when we often don't show that same desperation for another human being made in the image of God who desperately needs to know about Jesus so that they might be rescued from their sin. We can often risk life and limb on lots of efforts which may be noble but which are of limited eternal consequence. And in these last days, we need to engage with the network of relationships that God has placed us in. Let me tell you what I want to be. I want to be somebody as desperate as these Eskimos who will go all out to see some kind of rescue effort staged. I want to show the planning of these Russian icebreakers that I might set a course to sharing the gospel with my friend or work colleague so that they might be drawn into a relationship. I want to start praying for them at least and being ready to share at any moment as God opens doors and provides opportunities for me. Let's be instruments for God's exciting plans to draw people to himself. The coming of the Spirit means that we live in the last days. This is a time for salvation. It's not a time for sitting on our hands. And so it's a time that we want to use well. Let's use that time for God's glory to see him draw many more people into the family of believers. Will you pray with me? Let's pray to that end. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who is drawing together a people from all nations, tribes, and languages, setting them apart for your own praise and glory. And that one day we will have the opportunity to stand before your throne in worship with every one of them from all across the world, from across all time. Lord, help us to see where you are taking all things placing them under the rightful rule of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. So help us to be living for our King, to be focused on his kingdom, to be seeing the opportunities that you present to us. Lord, help us not be caught up in other things and somehow miss this window of time where there is great opportunity for people to turn in repentance and faith, to understand your great love for them in the sending of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you might help us this week to that end. Fill us, we pray, with your spirit that we might live in a way that serves your kingdom. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.